Hockey podcast. Your host is Jason, along with Chris. Yo. All right, and we got two uh, special guests this week. So, and I'll try to make a bit bigger uh, entrance for you this time, Eric. So, Eric from uh, the We're All a Little Crazy podcast, also from the same here uh, global uh, organization. So, Eric, thanks for being on. Thank you. I, well, what sharing the last time is the the theme music makes me want to run through a wall. Which I oh, got you. See, we had so we had some so. We'll, we'll peek behind the curtain here for the podcast. We had a massive technical issue to start, and we had to kind of redo everything we just did, and uh, we're back to uh, better quality here. So that's what it is. So that's a that's a local band here in St. Louis called Brook Royal and Bleed Blues. So that was a uh, kind of a blues theme song we had a, a couple of years back, and uh, yep. a couple of the band members we know. So we had them on the podcast. So awesome. uh, so quick, uh, Bleed Blue, Brook Royal, go download it real quick. So quick Be plug a, for them. A big fan of the, the local band. So so shout out to your local band. There. Awesome, indeed. So, and also, uh, Theo Fleury, who is going to be on We're All a Little Crazy podcast as well, is also a former Calgary Flame. And also, which doing my research, which I uh, remember that you were actually a Chicago Blackhawk very oh. briefly. Was. Yeah, we won't so, hold it against you. So, yeah. So, we'll, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, we'll, uh, we'll let that, we'll let skirt by that for now. So, we're going to talk about a variety of things today. So, we're going to go into, uh, obviously, we're all a little crazy podcasts that you guys are, have started now on the Hockey Podcast Network. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little uh, NHL hockey with uh, Theo and Eric and kind of talk about uh, a little bit of everything. So we'll just go. Uh, we'll start getting into it. So instead of me babbling on. So first off, uh, I want to get into talk a little bit to you, Eric, about your hockey fandom. So I want to get to know you a little better. So uh, first off, uh, Hockey fan, where's your hockey loyalty lie for uh, an NHL team? Sure. So I grew up in, in a town called Merrick, Long Island. And uh, if you grow up outside of the city, um, the Nassau Coliseum was the place to go. Mm-hmm. Once you were allowed to do things where your parents no longer had to kind of chaperone you around. <laughs> um, so so for anyone who grew up in that area or grew up in 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 the area where you weren't the main major city, right? We weren't in New York City. So I know there's a lot of folks out there that their city is kind of the second city. Um, you know, getting to go to Islander games at first being dropped off there, it's about a 15 minute ride from the house. And then um, once being able to drive and getting to go on our own, I mean, the memories that I have of Pierre Turgeon and, you know, Pat LaFontaine and Glenn Healy. My, my first pet was named Kelly after Kelly Rudy. Um, so, so rich, rich, uh, history in, in terms of rooting for, for the Islanders and hockey was always a sport. I, I played a little bit when I was younger, um, actually got to score a goal in, in our Stanley cup final on Nassau Coliseum ice. That doesn't mean I was very good. It was a awful rich shot from the blue line that somehow snuck past the goalie. That still counts. <laughs> it, it, it counted and I, and I have it on tape still. So VHS tape, I still haven't gotten that, uh, transferred over but um i'll say this about hockey i know this 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 podcast and this network is so hockey focuses 
I'm a basketball player by trade in terms of like the sport that I, I guess I excelled the most in and got to work for the NBA league office right out of college and another number of NBA teams. That being said, when I left to go, because, you know, there's enough similarity in the business side of hockey and basketball. So when I got to go overseas sales and service for the Devils and then took the position where, unfortunately, my mental health challenges really started with the Florida Panthers when the new ownership group came in. And there was a there's a love of hockey and a connection to the sport and something about being in an arena that I don't think you can replicate in any of the other major sports. And so as much as I love playing basketball more than any other sport, um, I would I wouldn't trade going to an NHL game over over anything else. I am the exact same way. You can't tell because I'm sitting down, but I'm actually seven foot tall. So basketball came very easy to me uh, and it paid for school, which is always nice. Wow. But my first love has always been hockey. I can't skate a lick, but I, I'll like I, I don't really like the NBA, but I don't care who's playing hockey. I'll watch it if it's on TV. You know, you know, hockey is, and, and it's probably it'll probably be funny to hear Theo's take on our take on hockey, right? When he hears us layman talking about it, but you know, I think everything that Americans want soccer to be exciting, hockey gives you. It, I agree. You know, the low scoring goals, every shot matters, every potential goal matters, but because you're on, it's a smaller field or rink, and because you're on ice and on skates, and it's so much faster. It's like you're on the edge of your seat for every single play. You don't have to wait for the 3v3 that you do with soccer or moving up and down the field as a unit. And then yeah. you get to watch the play develop where someone can take a shot from anywhere on the ice, you have a chance to score. All right. So as an Islander fan, we're going to play a quick game of instant reaction. In this closet over here, I have a jersey for every team in the league. And I have some that I have more than one. And the Islanders are one of them. I want your instant reaction to this because it's, I think, the most polarizing thing in Islander history. Yes, I knew you were going to bring up the fishermen. So I'll say this. Retro is back in. Agreed. I, but, but, here's the but. I loathe that logo so much that oh, I can't believe that that's become the in thing now. So I, I hope I'm not disrespecting anyone who does like it. You, I got a bad reaction from you there. Which do you hate worse? That jersey or the black Brooklyn one? Oh, interesting. I hate the black Brooklyn one more because it stood, I mean, look at the story that I gave you about how the Islanders are for Long Island, right? Yeah, and I agree. I 100% agree. So, so, so artistically, I probably hate the fisherman one more, but for all the reasons of what the black Jersey stands for related to ripping the heart. I mean, I, just so you know, the, so the marketing message when they first came to Brooklyn was, you know, you know, it was something about like tradition is here now or something like that. It's something to that effect. And it was basically like, hey, if you want to continue with their tradition, you're going to come watch it here as opposed to like, we welcome your tradition or right. there, there was nothing. to. And again, I'm botching exactly what the verbiage was. But, you know, I was never a huge fan of the marketing group that was there when the Islanders came there. And I think as evidence of the way that deal worked out, uh <laughs> Not surprising that that I felt that way. A lot of fans felt that way, um, and I'm, I'm just glad that they're getting their own arena built. I am and too. If you have you guys ever been to a game at Old Coliseum, at the one that's still up? I have. I, I never got to a game in Coliseum. I, I have gone to a couple of games at Barclays, and it's it's fine, but there's no atmosphere. It's it's to me like there's I no grew up. Atmosphere at Barclays. 
I grew up with the Blues playing in the old St. Louis Arena, which I'm sure, Theo, you have many memories of playing in that place. And that place was decrepit back when it was in its day. Yeah. And by the time they left, that damn place was falling apart. Um, but I remember the first year they moved into whatever the hell they called it when they first opened it up. Gilles and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> and I'm like purple seats. Yeah. Oh, I was like, yeah. what the hell is this? It was purple and pink. Yeah. And and I'm like, there's there's nothing blues about this. Yeah. And right. then they, they finally, like 10 years later, yeah. repainted the inside. And I was like, all right, now at least it looks like the blues play here and it's not a My Little Pony convention. Yeah, I thought one of the college team had purple uniforms or something. That's why they... No, not one. They were blue and white too. Yeah. What's funny is back in the day, everything in St. Louis was blue except for the Cardinals. You had the blues, which are obviously blue. The Rams were blue yeah. and St. Louis U was blue. I mean, right. before that, you had the St. Louis Cardinals football team. But I mean, back there, during the, when they opened that arena, everything in St. Everything that played there was blue. There was there was nothing purple or pink or orange or it was like Mardi Gras exploded in there, but for no reason because we're not in New Orleans. Yeah, and they weren't having beads out. No, yeah, exactly. no, they weren't. No. <laughs> No, so yeah, they um, so so uh, I guess going into that, so Theo, like growing up, did you have like kind of like an NHL team that you would latch that you latch on an NHL team or even player that you kind of latched on to maybe try to emulate uh, you know, playing, working your way up and going into juniors and stuff that you like? Well, any small guy that was having success in the NHL was my guy, so yeah, guys like Max Naslin played in Montreal, Mm -hmm. was was much bigger than me, and I actually got to play against him in the Stanley cup finals in my rookie year in, in Calgary. So that was kind of cool. Uh, one of my first exhibition games, I played against Denny Savard. Yeah. Who was like my guy. And uh, then there was an old uh, Cleveland Baron who became a Washington capital guy named Dennis Marouk, who scored 60 okay. twice wow. in the NHL was one of those guys that I, that I looked up to. And then I got, you know, I didn't know him until I retired and uh, we used to do a cross Canada legends tour where we played against all the police and fire uh, fire department teams. And we raised a bunch of money and Dennis uh, was on that tour and uh, he always wanted to play on my line. I don't know why, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, any, any small guy that was having success, uh, you know, in the league, cause it gave me hope and gave me, uh, you know, inspiration that maybe someday I, you know, I could accomplish what they, they accomplished. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I was talking to uh, Chris and we were kind of talking about, uh, you know, we were going to have you on the podcast and I was like, growing up when you, I thought Calgary flames and I was like, who's the first player when I was trying to tell him like, guess who we're going to talk to. And he's like, who was the first player you thought about Calgary flames growing up that you oh, would yeah. think of as I'm like, he's like, Oh, Theo Fleury. I'm like, boom. Cause that's like our, about our age range. Cause right. it's like when you played about, and, and it's the other thing too, is that why you stood out obviously because your size and you weren't afraid to go against anybody. Like, so our exam, my example was if some guy like Tony twist and yep. Kelly chase, like the guys like that, you, I saw a video clip and you're still going up there and going against Kelly chase, who is obviously our enforcer. Yep. So yep. we've, so would you have any memories of playing against the blues? Like growing up, like obviously I grew up, but playing in, uh, in Calgary, obviously, um, 
there'd be a lot of rivalry there. It wasn't the Battle of Alberta exactly, but, no. you know, we still uh, – but you guys, we did meet you guys in 86 in the playoffs where there's that very famous comeback game that the Monday Blues had. Yeah, our Monday Night Miracle. To, yeah, to get back to uh, Calgary for game seven. And but, got uh, beat down. Yeah. In game seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have one NHL record, and it happened in 1991 in the old St. Louis Arena where I scored a shorthanded hat trick at the old barn in St. Louis. And it was awesome. probably one of my greatest uh, accomplishments. Well, probably, probably one of my best games that I ever played. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty, pretty cool. Well, I'm going to say what, you have what, two what, records. Shorthanded, shorthanded hat trick, I'm assuming, means all three goals were shorthanded as opposed to the third goal was a shorthanded yeah. goal. Okay. That sounds say, like a blues thing to give up yeah. three shorties in a game. That's a, that's a pretty wow. good thing to do. I always say you had that that really really fast guy. His name was Adam Oates, who was playing yeah. mm-hmm. the right the right point. So any puck that I could sneak past him, I knew that he was not going to catch me. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, but it was interesting. So two of the goals were on breakaways because because uh, Oates fucked up. He mishandled the puck, and I poked it by him. No, <laughs> not Adam Oates. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the third one was a one-timer in the slot on the power play. Wow. I got a one-timer in the slot. That's on great. Killing a penalty. So. Yeah, yes. that's, a, that's a very that blues like, thing. That's a very, as we say, it's a very blues thing for us to, for yeah. blues to do. Um, so, Theo, I'm going to say you have a second, you have a, a, a second award or a second record because, at least for my age group, you have the all-time greatest goal celebration yes. of all time. <laughs> yeah. Anybody my age who has right. ever played any sort of hockey on yeah. any sort of a slick circus where you could slide, as soon as you scored a goal, if you didn't run and drop to your knees and do the Theo Fleury as far as you could down the ice, you're lying to yourself because we <laughs> all did it, every yeah. single one of us. It is the greatest goal celebration of all time in hockey. Well, yeah, that's that's that was it something was, that it's like I think that's what we called it too. That's that's like even the celebration had a name because for sure we saw it, that's the great thing to do. Yeah. Well, if you know anything about the Edmonton Calgary rivalry, mm-hmm. uh, not only is it at the NHL level, but it's at the kids' level too. So, you know, whether we're playing soccer or baseball or hockey or volleyball against each other, it is blood and war. You know. And that series was, yeah, like, if that series was played today, we would all be in jail. <laughs> because that's how violent yeah. and brutal. And, uh, you know, I always say that when we were slashing guys in that series, we were trying to hit bone. <laughs> wow, <Jeez>. that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And it, and it was pro- well, I think to this day it was probably one of the greatest series rivalry ever played. You know, the Islanders and the and the Rangers have a big rivalry, Boston, Montreal, uh Montreal, Quebec, you know, Hartford and Boston, you know. Uh it was just a brutal, brutal series, you know. Like I remember uh you know, either we were at home or we were at, on the plane flying home. Every single guy that played in that game had an ice bag. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> every guy. 
you know, the whole, like for seven games, every guy had a nice bag or a black guy or, you know, Steve was stitched up or something. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So one thing uh, I was going to talk about, so obviously for Theo and I want to talk to Eric, you being Islanders fans, Islanders having a very rich tradition of being, uh, having a lot of Stanley cups. Our friend Dominic has a, uh, runs a, uh, Islanders, uh, podcast and website so he's a very big uh al he was an al arbor fan so he went from obviously st louis to uh new york and he just his dad said well you're gonna then he followed him and he's always still a st louis fan but also the islanders have a special place for him so finally the after 52 years st louis finally got off the schneid and we got a stanley cup uh so obviously very you know <laughs> you know it was a little crazy here in st louis for a couple of days <laughs> i don't think many people stopped partying for a couple of days so obviously the hall sure didn't yeah, didn't, uh, <laughs> we're gonna a week straight <laughs> yeah we were we're pretty sure that uh brett hall didn't sleep for a solid week so he no. was uh he was uh celebrating like he just won another cup too which is just fine by me so let's celebrate by proxy yeah, but, you know what? That's that's the great great thing about the Blues organization is they created that alumni group, uh-huh. and uh, a lot of the guys that played in St. Louis, you know, stayed. And then what was it? The Matthew Kachuk's draft year. Like how many kids from St. Louis got? Oh drafted? man, it was a seven in the first round. That yeah, was the first like, time ever. Yeah, you know that's such a that's such a cool thing. You know that those guys stayed and really built the game uh, yeah. for the younger for the younger kids in St. Louis, you know, and I, uh, <clears throat> I was on a show up here in Canada called battle of the blades mm-hmm. and uh, Kelly chase. Yeah. Uh, tough guy turned figure skater uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. was, was on the show the same year and him and I had battled, you know, for a decade, you know, against each other. And then, uh, to be on that show and get to know him uh, personally, mm-hmm. you know, what, a, what an amazing guy and what, what he, he's done so many great things in St. Louis mm-hmm. uh, representing the blues. Uh, you know, it's great to see. Yeah. I see him. Uh, yeah, unfortunately we had uh, Bob Plager just pass away in the yeah, last I couple of weeks. Yeah. So I see Kelly chase being like that next guy to step up and be that, that guy that's going to be the face kind of uh at the charity events, always there to help out. So Kelly Chase, definitely awesome guy, awesome individual. So he's definitely somebody that's, you know, helping the alumni out as well. Um, so I was going to say about the Stanley Cups, obviously you won the Stanley Cup in 89 with Calgary. Um, and obviously St. Louis, kind of, we saw the, what the Blues had to go through to get the cup, kind of like the teams and the adversity and obviously injuries and, and such. When you're in the middle of that run from what you remember, could you like feel like this is the year kind of, it seems like as from a fan viewpoint, watching the blues and when they had the double overtime goal in game seven, me and Chris were at that game against Dallas and Pat Maroon scored. We you had the like feeling where you don't want to say it out loud because it's we're just so superstitious in St. Louis, you know, we didn't want to say it, but you had that feeling like and then that San Jose game when they won, you're like, man, like, they got something here. I think we got it. Like, did you have a feeling any time during that cup run in 89 where you're like, yeah, we can do this whole thing. We can run the, the whole gamut here and win it. Yeah. Well, I don't know how many first round playoff disappointments you've had in St. Louis, but a lot. I'm sure there's a lot, a lot. And, and 
you know, that year we finished, I think, 40 points ahead of the Vancouver Canucks. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we met them in the first round of the playoffs and they took us to game seven overtime. And uh, thank God for Joel Otto's size 12 skate because <laughs> the puck went in off his skate and in the net. And uh, so we lost three games in that first series and we lost three games the rest of the playoffs because we wow. swept, we swept LA uh, we beat Chicago four games to one, and then we beat Montreal four games to two. And I think, um, you know, after the disappointment of losing to Montreal in 86, um, you know, they might have thought that that was their sort of window to have the opportunity to win. And then I would say after that goal, that overtime goal went in against Vancouver, you know, we didn't really have – a whole lot. We didn't really face a whole lot of adversity the rest of the playoffs, except we were down two games to one uh, against Montreal, and uh, we won the next three games and and uh, you know won the cup. But uh, you know the first round of the playoffs is the hardest round to win, and you know even the subsequent years after we won the cup in Calgary, like we were you know, a top five team, I think for three years after that in the standings and we couldn't get out of the first round of the playoffs. You know, we lost, uh, we lost in 91 to the Oilers in overtime. We lost in 93 uh, to the Canucks in overtime. We lost to the Sharks in game seven in overtime. So, you know, when you're the favorite uh, going into a playoff series, you know, the team you're playing against, really has nothing to lose and they usually play way above their head. And if they get any kind of momentum early on in the series, you got your hands full because that's the one thing in the playoffs is once you lose the momentum, it is so hard to get it back. Mm -hmm. Well, they always say that of all the sports, hockey is the one where home ice advantage seems to matter the least. Yeah. Until you get to a game seven. Yeah. And obviously you want to be at home for game seven, but you know, as a favorite, you don't ever want it to get to game seven. Sure. You know, like the one year we've lost to San Jose, uh, they put in their backup goalie because Arthur, Arthur Urbe couldn't stop a beach ball. Well, and they put this guy named Wade Flaherty in the net. Oh yeah, who nobody ever heard of. He made 63 saves in game seven. Jeez. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like you never wanted to get the game seven. Yeah. Theo, of all the guys that you had the opportunity to play with and against, who do you think is the best player you ever had the opportunity to play with? And who was the one guy that if you lined up against him, you knew you were in for a hell of a, a night as far as it was going to be a tough game? Yeah. Well, you know, I always go to the to the big four: Sakic, Iserman, Lemieux, and Gretzky. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, every every team seemed to have that one guy that you absolutely you know really didn't like playing against, right? And for me, you know, I was always against the other team's best defensive left winger 
and I had to deal with that, you know, all night. But uh, but you know what? Um, you know, those those are the games when you know the, the games were fun because now I got to compete at a higher level than the guy that I'm playing against, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I think that's the one thing that set me apart from every other small guy that tried to play was I competed at the highest level. And, you know, I absolutely hated to lose. And, uh, you know, those guys that brought it every night, you know, the Chelioses, the Prongers, the McGinnises, you know, the guys that played at the high, highest level, you know, that's when it was fun to play because, you know, I had to really find out what I was made of. And, and uh, you know, if I didn't compete at their, at their level, then I wasn't going to have success. But, you know, the, the nights that I matched that compete level, you know, where was the nights that I had a lot of success and, and that's, you know, that's one of the biggest problems right now in the game is that, you know, there's very few guys that compete at that high level, you know, where, you know, you're, you know, every, every time you step on the ice, people notice you, you know, right. And, you know, you watch the game now and, and, you know, you, you watch a Leafs game and you're like, well, where's, where's Marner tonight? You know, or you watch uh, the blues play and you say, where's Tarasenko, you know, whereas in our era, you know, you knew when Gretz was on the ice, you knew when Sackick was on the ice, you knew when Theo Fleury was on the ice because we, we made something happen at every moment of the game because, you know, that's, that's what, you know, uh, playing in the NHL is all about is you got to have an impact uh, every time you step on the X. It seemed like in your era, and I don't know if maybe this is a uh, result of the league expanding, but it seemed like when you played every team, like you were saying, had that guy that you knew if he was on, he could score like that. Yeah. And there, there's a few teams in the league right now that gun to my head, I couldn't tell you a damn player on that team. Um, yeah. I mean, now there are still obviously superstars around the league, but it, it just seemed like, like you were saying back in the nineties, every team was lethal in their own regard. And every yeah. team had a chance to get in and make noise. And yeah. nowadays it's like Columbus blue jackets. I, I don't know who you are. Uh, you know, you know, Carolina Hurricanes, I don't know who you are. I mean, and that's no offense to those teams or their fan bases, mm-hmm. but, you know, it, it's just, it seems like maybe it's the talent pool has gotten a little too diluted. And, and, and honestly, that's probably partially thanks to the success that, that your generation of players had that it made the game so popular that it allowed the league to expand into to non-traditional markets. But I think the byproduct of that is you have less teams with superstar caliber players or quite honestly, owners willing to spend the money to get those players in. I mean, look at the dead contracts that the Arizona Coyotes have had over the last decade. Holy crap. Like the amount of hall of fame players they've had that have never put on the skates for that team is ridiculous. Um, It's well, when we won the cup in 89, there was 21 teams. Yeah. Right. So that means what? 420 jobs, 440. Now there's close to 800 jobs. Right. And what I find is everybody can skate. 
everybody can skate. Every guy who plays in the NHL can skate. And, you know, I, I was watching an old classic game uh, when Montreal was in the middle of winning five cups in a row. And Scotty Bowman was the only coach on the bench. He was running the whole bench. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there's five or six guys in suits yeah. behind the bench. And what are they carrying? iPads. Right. So, right. you know, they, they've taken the creative player and turned him into a slug because they coach, you know, you know, when, when, when a coach is making five, six, seven, eight million dollars a year, and he doesn't have any offensive ability, well, what are they going to do? They're going to coach for a zero zero tie and you get a scoring chance in the last minute. Right. So the game I believe is way too overcoached. Uh, I think they need to remove all of the coaches and just have one coach on the bench and let him run the, run, run the bench. And you'll see a lot more, uh, games that you know are are fun to watch you know like the flames right now are unwatchable the yeah. flames right now are unwatchable yeah. we'll know? take matthew kachuk if you guys don't need him at all <laughs> send him home whenever, yeah. you're, whenever you're ready bring him yeah. home but, 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 that, but that it's just though. you know what it's because they can't create offense right and if you can't create offense you, you're not going to win doesn't matter if you play for a zero-zero tie. If you got nobody that scores that one goal to put you over the edge, then you know. But in my era, you know, there was, you know, the the third and fourth lines in my era are the, you know, the second and third lines on teams now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and if you had a good four-line team in the '80s and the '90s, you're the team that was winning Stanley Cups. But then, I mean, I don't know. You talk about how much has changed. Like, you think about systems, how much they've changed. Theo, I think you nailed a lot there with the iPads and being risk-averse. One of the changes that the league's made since you played is the point that you get for making it to overtime, which then keeps everyone close-knit together. I can tell you from the business side of it, teams teams on the executive side enjoy that because now you got to stay in it longer, even if if your team was average and mediocre, which means your renewals, which come around in January and February, your team is now still in it. So you have a reason to push people to have to renew in order to get rights for playoffs, just in case your team goes on a run. Oh, by the way, St. Louis blues, what happened with the team going on the run? Right. Yeah. So, So you're right. We're coaching in a risk averse way. And then, you know, you guys were asking about the Islanders. So I'll go back to like, here's a funny thing. You guys are talking about like our era of being fans and and Theo was in his prime when we were coming up, you know, as kids rooting for it is, is we, the the NHL when we were fans was, was the the WWF before it became the WWE. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Where personalities were what sold, right? Like the individual personalities. And so you look at guys like Theo, why in the NHL right now is there not a guy who plays like Darius Kasparitis? A coach wouldn't let him just line people up and try and do hip. There you go. Thank you. Like <laughs> just to line him up and do hip checks to get momentum going be, 
Why? Because he'd miss a defensive assignment if he went that way, right? And yeah. Ray Ferrari, you talk about little guys, right? Like, he would always have his nose in the play somewhere and always be a little bit out of position, but trying to make an extra play and then have to run back because you forecheck too much. And, you know, that stuff's not allowed anymore. You know, I watched the Golden Knights because of Robin. We can get into that later. And it's like the Boar system, which I watched when I worked for the Devils, is like five men go up together. It's like a swarm of flies. Five men right. come back. Five men go up together, five men come back. And it's like, so you don't see the development of the personalities. And that's why I bring up the WWF thing. That's why I bring up even the 90s with basketball was a little bit that way. Like, Oh, for sure. Showtime Lakers. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's got, like, the shirts that, that, that they had in Theo's era when he played of the cartoon characters of the players on the shirts together. Like, that's how we could... I, I didn't know where Calgary was per se. I didn't know where Edmonton was, but Same. I knew his name. I knew Wayne Gretzky's name. I knew Mark Messier's name because they created those characters around the way that they played and the heart that they gave. And so much right. that's out of the sport that's a lot more vanilla. Now. Well, NHL 94 on Sega Genesis, oh, you know, really all created, time favorite. Yep. really created, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, you could actually be that, that your favorite guy you could be yeah. that guy you know and they had fighting and they had blood in the game and all that so you know they actually did a documentary i don't know if you guys have seen the documentary oh uh, stop my head no nhl 94 did a documentary i need to find that and watch yeah, i need that. to find that for uh, sure what a great documentary like it's just awesome they went back to the guy's house that invented the game and he invented the game in a garage somewhere in Maine. That's crazy. Where he had no heater in his garage and he was just writing code and all this stuff. So they went into the basement and in a box, he had one of one, like the very first uh, cartridge of NHL 94 was in a box. And this guy who was doing the documentary, like almost had a heart attack when he saw it because he was like, Oh my God, like this is it. Like this is the first game ever made, you know? So you're right. So yeah, I mean, that, that, that was great for, for all of us because, you know, when I would go to places like, you know, Carolina and LA and all that, these kids would be coming up to me saying, man, I play with you on NHL 94 and you're yeah. like the bomb, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I great think you're marketing. right. Great I marketing. think that the, the video game totally did that and eric what you said with the personalities like look man there's a reason they renamed the street in front of the arena brett hallway you know there just is like it doesn't matter who else plays for this team in the history of its existence whether this team stays here another 10 years or 110 years brett hall will forever be the st louis blues because he was larger than life he didn't win a cup here he won one in dallas and detroit but no one cares. He will forever be, as long as he wants to be, the face of the St. Louis Blues because he was godlike for kids like me growing up in the era watching him score and, and do what he did. He always had a sound bite. He always had something colorful to say. You know, he was and he was one of those guys that like you could still approach him. I remember as a kid the rumor was that Brett would never sign his 50 goals and 50 games card. Cause he thought it was bad luck. 
And that also, if you caught him at the wrong time, that Brett could be a little bit of a dick to you if you were a kid, if you asked him for something at the wrong time. But we went to enough games at the old arena, my old crew of friends, there was like six of us, that we would space ourselves out around the arena and basically play a game of telephone. We knew where each player parked and all that stuff. So we knew that Brett was coming in and I ran up and I waited because I was always respectful of the players. Like I'm not going to barge them as they're trying to get out of their car. But he gets out of his car and I just went, oh, I'm just going to see if he'll do it. And I was like, Mr. Hall, will you sign my card? And I handed him a 50-50 and he didn't even blink and he signed it. I was so excited that I didn't realize his dad got out of the passenger seat and walked behind me into the arena. So I missed Bobby Hall. But it was one of those things where like the crowd just swarmed him and he was cool. As long as you weren't blocking his way, he would sign whatever. He wasn't going to take a picture because he needed to get in and get ready for the game. But it seemed like the players understood that, you know, without the fans, there's no game. And I think that's something that hockey gets more so than any of the other big four Mm -hmm. sports is that there's that symbiotic relationship between the players and the fans. And there's a mutual respect where like the crowd respects that you're there to do a job and damn it, we want you to win. We get that you're not going to win every game, but you know, the players also understand that like, Hey man, without you guys buying tickets, I don't have a paycheck. And I remember one night singing after a game to get autographs and I forget who the blues had played, but they beat our brains in like eight to one and Cujo came out and was all smiles and signed autographs for everyone. And I just remember thinking, there is no way that dude right now wants to stand here and pretend that he's okay (laughs) being happy when he just got his brains beat out on the ice, but he did it. Yeah. So interesting. I think that's, that's such a great thing about hockey players. And, uh, but most of us come from, you know, pretty humble places, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, we really, you know, I know early on in my career that, you know, that, you know, the Ted Lindsay's and those guys are the guys that built this game, you know, and got it to the, to the place and then handed it over to us, you know, to take it to the next place. Right. You know? And so, and I was very fortunate because I got to, you know, I got to hang around Gretz. I got to hang around Mario. I got to hang around Joe and, you know, I saw how humble they were and how they made everybody feel important, you know, from the fans to the, you know, the guys that made the coffee, that folded the laundry, the towels, you know, all that stuff, because, mm-hmm. you know, they knew that, that those guys were important, you know, that they made our lives easier, you know, right. so, you know, that, that, that always stuck with me. And then, you know, you go to an all-star game and you get to sit at a table with Stan Mikita and listen to him tell stories mm-hmm. of, you know, being on trains and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, and here we are flying around in private planes and, you know, all that stuff. And you just, you know, you, 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 you remember where you come from, right. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's the most important thing. And, and uh, I think that's been, been lost because, you know, uh, you know, Connor McDavid is the first one sport athlete. He didn't play anything other than hockey. Mm-hmm. That's it. He didn't play baseball. He didn't play soccer. He didn't play anything else. You know, I was, I remember I was at a, uh, 
my old junior team, the Moose Jaw Warriors, I'd go to their golf tournament every year. And I was in a group with one of the players that is, you know, a current player. And he couldn't hit a golf ball. And I was just like, oh my God, like, <laughs> this is where the game is at. Is yeah. These guys are one sport athletes. They can only play one sport. Like he could not hit a golf ball. And I was like, I was like in shock. <laughs> right. That he was that bad of a golfer, you know? That's crazy. So, yeah. so um, before uh, Eric, and I want to talk about the same here, uh, global mental health movement. I want to get into your guys' podcast. We're all a little crazy, but before we move on to that, so obviously I wanted to kind of look into, do my research on you, Theo, and see if there's something outside of hockey that maybe I just didn't know about you. So one thing that kind of caught my attention so you have like a music career. I didn't know that you had a country album that you put out, which is yeah. amazing. And I was looking at that and you also had wrote a song for a Madden game, which Madden games are legit, like almost the biggest game selling every year, maybe not in the last couple of years, but Madden 18, that's, you know, that's a big game. And you wrote a song for the career mode, which is yeah. a thing that every, like me and Chris, like when you play yeah. sports games, that's where you go. You make your guy, you make yourself and you want to obviously be in the game. So, like, how did you, like, kind of, like, get into, like, is the music kind of always been your passion outside of hockey, or is that something you kind of found with life after, like, your playing career ended? Well, I grew up in a very musical family. So, Sundays were jam sessions at aunts, uncles, grandpas, you know, everybody had a guitar, everybody sang, everybody, you know. So, and my dad used to take me and my two little brothers to talent contests all over our area and we do these talent shows and you know I always had a karaoke machine in my house wherever I played because I I just love to sing and uh, so when I retired from the game uh, I had a friend uh, who works for Sony Records and uh, he lives in Winnipeg and our dads used to play music together before we were even born and so this particular kid, uh, when he was 14, he was like a really great hockey player. He had, he had, you know, an opportunity to go places playing hockey, but they bought him a guitar for Christmas mm -hmm. and basically quit hockey. And he spent the next four years in his bedroom playing this guitar. And then he, you know, he started a band and then he got discovered and then wow. all this stuff. And so uh, after my book came out, I, called him up and I said, Hey, I need to stroke something off my bucket list. Uh, would you be interested in writing a song with me? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And he put a stipulation on it though. He said, well, the week while you're here, we play musicians hockey Tuesday and Thursday. You got to come out and play musicians. High. I said, sure. No problem. So I dragged my hockey bag. And, and, and so we wrote this song, which is basically a theme song to my life. And we recorded it, mastered it anyways. He sends it to me and I listened to it. I'm like, holy shit, like this is really good. And so I called him back and I said, what do you think of the song? And he's like, the song is great. And so I said, would you, uh, you want to continue writing? And he said, yeah, absolutely. So I kept going back to Winnipeg. And so we ended up writing about 30 songs for the album mm -hmm. and we picked the 10 best songs and we put this album together. And, uh, 
you know, we've actually sold 10,000 copies of, of this, uh, That's awesome. this album, which, That's is impressive. Pretty amazing, is. which is pretty amazing. And we've done some touring and, you know, we do the odd show here and there, but this is the best story ever. So I show up at Mario Lemieux's fantasy camp the first year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I walk in the dressing room and I'm sitting beside this kid. And so first thing I say to him, I go, uh, what do you do for a living? He goes, uh, before I tell you what I do for a living, he goes, I just want you to know that I was sitting in the stands the night you scored three shorthanded goals in St. Louis. And I was <laughs> nine years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's how the conversation started. So we become buddies and, and uh, we exchange numbers. And then uh, two years later, well, so what does he do for a living? He builds the Madden football game. That's his job. Okay. That's awesome. So a couple of years after that first camp, I get this random text from Michael. And he says, uh, he goes, hey, I've been listening to your music. I really love your music. He goes, would you write a song for the Madden football game? And I'm like, uh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he sends all the parameters for the song and I go to Winnipeg with my buddy and we write this song in like 45 minutes. That's amazing. That's yeah. great. That's awesome. And, uh, and yeah, so, and, and what, what's even better is that this same guy has written the Hollywood script to the Theo Fleury movie, which nice. we are like, this close to signing a deal to to get the picture done so that's great so who plays theo flurry on the big screen i don't know <laughs> if you if you could cast it who would you pick oh man i don't even know you play yourself would you do if they asked you to play yourself would you do it no no you gotta have a cameo nope. though, right yeah you gotta pull well, the I, I think i'm gonna do cameo. all the on ice stuff i think i'm gonna do all the on ice scenes Okay, that's it's, good. It's me, so and that's then I have to teach some some uh, Hollywood actor how to skate. Skate, you know? yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's there's been lots of uh, famous guys that have re- uh, that have uh, read the script. So like Zac Efron has read the script. Uh, um, who else? I'm trying to think. Uh, that's a. I mean, that's that's a lister right there, though. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. So it's. Uh, yeah, it'll be a fun project to do. So, That's That's awesome. we'll, yeah, we'll look forward to that. Yeah. So, uh, we'll start to get, um, before uh, we get out of here. We're obviously we're here to talk about your guys' podcast. We're all a little crazy. And Eric, I wanted you to help fill me in on the uh, hashtag same here, the global mental health movement. And the website you have is samehereglobal.org. So, uh, your mission statement, let me read that real quick, and then you can tell me more about it is to normalize society's perception of mental health and make it part of everyday conversation, which is especially nowadays, even before even the pandemic hit and everybody kind of going through different things now, I think that's even more prevalent now and obviously a very important thing, not only in sports, is obviously uh, Theo has written about in his book and what would you guys have talked about, but I think in everybody's everyday life. So uh, tell me about Same Here Global. Sure, you know, it's interesting you bring up the pandemic because, you know, Theo and I got together working on this the end of 2017, so... You know, unless you're Bill Gates, maybe the pandemic wasn't on too many people's radar. <laughs> and uh, that was a little big. But um, so, 
you know, I, I, I mentioned working for the Panthers and I'm six months into my tenure with the Panthers, a new ownership group, living down at South Beach, a single guy, enjoying life. And then bam, you know, six months in my brain, my body just stopped functioning. Like literally almost you, you were talking about getting a new com computer, Jason. So, um, you know, imagine having a computer and you just snip the wires in the back and it just mm. stops functioning. That's, that's what it was like being in my head at the time. And so I spent two and a half years just staring at a ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to the radio, no original thoughts coming. My brain is these doctors tried 50 different psychotropic drugs on me, something called TMS therapy, where they shoot electromagnetic waves into your brain, oh. try to essentially nope, don't want that. But no, well, then it got worse. Then they told me to do shock therapy um, under general anesthesia, getting your brain shocked and seizure through electrodes. And none of those work either. And so, I, you know, like most people who deal with mental health, you know, you, you, you get thrown all these labels at you. You have depression or anxiety or PTSD or OCD. And what I learned was, you know, being a child growing up, um, older brother is a big hockey fan as well. Um, he had been through every ailment you could think of under the sun from breaking a femur bone, cracking in half to cancer for five years in the eighties when that was a really scary thing to have. Not that it's not scary now, but even more wild, wild west back then. Um, septic shock from chemo treatments, flew out of a Jeep on his way to an Islander game, cracked his head open on the medical parkway of Long Island. Had a relapse of leukemia the second time around. Oh, uh, kidney transplant from from his kidneys failing. So all these things, and then three of my close friends passing away. And what I learned was what I lived through as a child were all these traumatic events that had been building up in my central nervous system over time. That I never noticed because much like Theo, as you know, you, you people read his story is you when you when you're a high performer at something right theo playing hockey myself maybe playing sports at first and then working in a business office you don't necessarily notice in yourself and other people don't notice in you that when you're only operating at 80 percent of yourself then 78 percent then 74 percent if you're still performing above what someone else might be able to perform at a hundred percent of themselves you just keep going nose to the ground and keep working hard right so uh, the, the reason why I crashed the way that I did is because all these things had built up in me over, over all those years. And now here I am at 35 with the Panthers. And even though all those things quote ended by the time I was 23, you're still dealing with life. You're still dealing with the transition of moving to different markets and breakups and, you know, politics at work and all that fun stuff. And so the cumulative buildup eventually gets to a certain point where, you know, it takes you down if you, if you're not proactively working on it. And so, um, you know, I, I ended up healing through doing things like breathing practices and yoga and meditation and mindfulness and all the things that people told me nothing about when I was, you know, mm -hmm. trying the, the traditional ways, quote unquote, of healing. And, you know, I was ready to go back and work in sports, you know, just because that was my life. That's all I knew. That's what my purpose was. I knew myself as Eric, the sports executive, but I couldn't get over that. I had spent all this time just out of it without anyone ever telling me that I should have been working on my brain the way that coaches were telling me to run stadium stairs and, you know, <laughs> lift weights and watch film. And, you know, I, 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 I then went to, okay, well, how are people finding out about mental health? So I went to the largest mental health nonprofits in our country 
and NAMI and Mental Health America and Bring Change to Mind and Active Minds and Jed Foundation. And I think they're all phenomenal organizations. The challenge is, you know, you guys will appreciate this being in the sports world. What do we do when a team makes the playoffs, right? We, we, we create a message for the whole community to rally around all for one, one team goal, right? Yep. So that the fans, the players, the community all come together around that message and we're all charging towards the same thing. The opposite is the case with mental health with the messages, right? And this goes back to 2017, but even now, if you look in 2021, when I'm looking on these websites, all the messages are one in five people have mental illness. Okay, well, we're highlighting the one in five. What the hell are we telling the other four and five people? Because if life experiences impact all of us and you're not in the one in five mentally ill category and we don't have a classification for you, I guess you're healthy, fine, normal, okay, nothing to see here, don't worry about it, right? That's essentially what we're telling people. You know, the whole stop the stigma campaigns, everyone gets so excited about it. Stop the stigma, break the stigma. But those campaigns, they further break us apart because we can't help it. If the four of us formed an organization, you know, called the St. Louis Blues Mental Health Organization, and we got out in St. Louis and we just started marching around, stop the stigma, stop the stigma. That's a great rallying cry for us and the people that we're being protective of. It's not a great rallying cry for the people that we're trying to get to understand what mental health is because you're pointing the finger at them and essentially saying, you need to stop doing what you're doing, right? Yeah, right. right. Is in judgment. And then the final piece where really Theo, you know, I, I reached out to him is I was looking at the way all these celebrity stories were being shared either by first before there was social media, the paparazzi who were taking pictures of Britney Spears and saying, look, Britney Spears is depression. She shaves her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety. She's a hot mess. All the way to now, social media, you know, you, you'll see Kanye West say something about having bipolar, and then everyone else is chiming in and saying, oh, leave him alone. He's crazy. He's got bipolar. He's, he's having a manic episode, right? So you add these three things up about the way in which our nonprofits even and our government agencies communicate about this topic. They make it a binary one. It's the one in five people we need to stop stigmatizing who shave their heads, run off basketball courts and panic attacks, uh, have to go to the substance abuse program because they've done something crazy. And that's what people think mental health is. And mental health is actually everything we all live through in life that challenges all of us. Everything from being on a plane as a three-year-old and having turbulence to something as terrible as what happened to Theo as a child and being raped, right? And so if our life experiences live across this continuum where we all experience challenges, you know, my thought on it was we have to shift the paradigm away from one in five, away from stopping stigma to more of a five and five message where it's all of us and seen here, you know, Jason, what you mentioned, the name is an American sign language sign. It came very much from a story Theo told me, but it, about a person sharing their own experience with him and how much just sharing experience connects us that if the four of us say same here to each other, I know that we're being real to one another, even though I know nothing about your personal backgrounds yet, because I know as a human being, you guys have faced challenges in your life. You can't be a human being without having faced challenges. So I know, no disrespect to the two of you, I think this is actually an interesting thing. Neither of you have perfect mental health. <laughs> I, I oh. hope that doesn't... Uh, no, that's, that's 100%. Absolutely. absolutely correct, yeah. And so to have a Robin Lerner now who wears a same here on his helmet, right? And a Theo is out there talking about it. 
and sharing not the label, right? Robin doesn't lead with only I have bipolar, right? Like that's not what his conversation is about. Robin is I struggle. I go through challenges. This is what my life was like growing up. Theo talks about the volatility in his family, even though musically and talented, it, 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 he talks about addiction issues and he talks about some of the things that you know were, were, were said to him when he was a kid that, that made his life a little more difficult. The, the relatability of our stories is what ties us together. So the shift that needs to happen in the mental health space, which is what we hope to accomplish with this podcast, is we don't need to talk top down. Let's talk about the symptoms of depression. Let's talk about how you treat anxiety. We need to talk bottom up. Like, what the hell happened to you when growing up? And by the way, you're not weak for sharing that. You're a strong ass mf for sharing that. And the fact that you're open about it is going to help so many other people and you know, this might sound simplistic, but we all, we're human beings because, you know, we gathering around the campfire and sharing stories and then learning from those stories is what, you know, made us develop the way that we did, right? We're, we're mm -hmm. wired to want to listen to stories. And so our angle on it is stories have been told in the mental health space before, to be fair. But what we do is we thread together the stories of people with platforms to show people that it's not the end of the spectrum one in five people it's everyone and then we take those stories and we're we're gonna dive into things like vincent jackson's death right or the death mm -hmm. of keyson johnson's daughter right or what just happened unfortunately with the, this nfl player in south carolina right like yeah. we're gonna talk about current event topics in a way that darren Ravel, i think said it aptly is we're gonna make people comfortably uncomfortable that's the only way that change happens, right? Because if, yes. if I'm a nonprofit leader and I say, well, we just had a shooting, but that had nothing to do with mental health. That's what every nonprofit leader says because they don't want to get into the, muck, the, 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 the messiness of our people are going to be labeled if we say, you can't shoot up a group of people without your mental health having been impacted. I'm sorry that that's a reality that I'm, I'm, I'm shining a light on. It is the reality. Now, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean... Now, I can also say in the same breath, 99.9% .9 of people whose mental health has been challenged, which is, by the way, all of us, are not going to shoot up a group of people. So why can't we say both those things and be responsible at the same time? So hopefully that background is helpful in terms of the organization, but then, you know, what we plan to do and having people like Theo, having people like Darren and coming at it from different angles, Darren being a reporter, so we can hold the media's feet to the fire, Theo being a former player, so we can talk about is every athlete and celebrities share really helping the conversation the way that we all celebrate it when someone shares or might some of these things actually be hurting us and setting us back and i can share from the business side sports executive side of things like the example that i gave with the with the playoff messages you combine those three things you get to look at this topic from many different angles now that people can relate to and say are we really talking about this in the way that we should or does a shift need to happen yeah and i think uh like exactly what you know like what you said it's really nice to focus on the eyes of the other four which i think is good which having people understand what you're going through like saying oh let's take stop or being you know obviously be inclusive and you want all that to happen but at the same time having somebody understand at least try to understand where you're coming from is i think is a very important message and uh jason, obviously jason, that, if i if i said jason that jersey that's framed on your wall looks crazy good on your wall mm -hmm. and i said chris those monster drinks in your refrigerator those must be crazy cold do you think i'm saying that your jersey looks mentally ill or that your drink 
drinks are mentally ill cold. Like, so, no, obviously, yeah. No, right? And, and, and so my point there is, is like in this space where you can't use the word crazy, okay, can we talk to people in the way that they talk to one another? Yes. Because if you want to engage mm-hmm. yes. the four and five to have a conversation, if you call every program that you do the mind health hour, guess who's not going to, who's not going to chime in or not going to tune right. in? Most people, right? It's going to be the people who've been diagnosed already, right? Or the future psychologists and psychiatrists of America group. It's not going to be the masses. So, you know, you hear the name of our platform. I'm sure there's going to be some people who are a little offended by it. Hopefully they see we have quotes around the word crazy. The A is upside down in the logo. We're poking fun at the word. I also poking fun essentially at the word normal, right? There's no such thing as normal. We all are a little bit crazy. We all have our quirks. We all live through things that mess us up. Those are things we need to talk about. That's the only way normalization happens when we talk about our similarities. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, listening to all what you guys dive into on uh, different topics. So it's going to be, I think... Something outside of, like you said, making yourself uncomfortable, but like, but to understand what people are going through, I think is a very important thing. So um, before we start to wrap things up here, let's try to, um, one thing I wanted to bring up as part of the podcast and also um, kind of like maybe why Theo's involved, like your autobiography, did you kind of, when you, when you wrote this, did you kind of, was it, was it cathartic for you? And also, did you think the impact it had on other people with mental health? Did you see that like kind of coming when you put it out there, which, or was it something you were just like, I want to get my story out there for others to see what I went through and then maybe they can start to heal as well. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had no idea what the hell I was getting myself into. All I wanted to do was actually get the truth out so that I could take one last look at it put it in its rightful place and move on. Mm. And what happened was it put me right in the middle of the biggest epidemic on the planet, which is trauma, mental health and addiction. And uh, from the, from the very first book signing, which was 12 and a half years ago, like I got run over. I got completely run over by people like five, 10, 15 people, 20 people at every book signing, every speaking engagement, every workshop are coming to the table and telling me their trauma story for the first time. And, you know, now that I've, you know, I've done 800 speeches uh, in the last 12 and a half years and, you know, everybody's aware that we have a mental health epidemic. Everybody's aware that we have an opioid crisis. Everybody is aware that we have addiction issues. And the catalyst which brings us into these categories is a little thing called trauma, right? And what I've found is there's no space to talk about trauma, you know? Because when I stand on the stage and I say I was raped 150 times by my coach, every single person in my audience projects shame onto me. My shame is gone. I've done my work. You know, I've done my therapy, all this stuff. But as soon as I say it, everybody's head hits the floor. People are uncomfortable. They shift around in their chairs. And I'm like, okay, this is why we have a mental health epidemic is because 
There is no space to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's the most lucrative business on the planet right now? It's not Amazon. It's child and human trafficking. It's a $150 billion industry. Wow. Okay. So I thought that I was the only guy, only male, who had been raped as a child. Mm-hmm. Guess what? There's just as many boys as there are girls who have been raped, right? And so um, the purpose of the podcast is to talk about trauma, right? Because that's what brings us into this space, right? If you're bullied in school, that's trauma. If your parents divorced when you're young, that's trauma, if somebody close to you died, that's trauma. If you get mm-hmm. diagnosed with a disease, that's trauma. And so what happens is it affects, that trauma affects our nervous system. And when our nervous system is affected, mental health comes into play because our chemistry is thrown off. We, we stop working out. We stop eating healthy. We stop, we stop, we just stop doing everything that we're supposed to be doing, yeah. Right. And big pharma owns mental health. They own it. They own it because there's a magic pill that we see every three minutes of a six minute uh, sitcom that has commercials. They're telling us that there's a magic pill that has 200 side effects, which is the other 15 seconds of the commercial. The first 15 seconds is, Hey, we got this magic pill. And then the last 15 seconds, they're reading off, you know, all these side effects. Right. And what Eric and I have both discovered in this space is that there's a whole holistic side of mental illness that isn't being talked about, you know, that is actually getting people off medication and getting them into a space of health and well-being and state of mind and all that and so that's part of the stigma right that's part of the stigma and you know i think we've done a poor job with our communities and people who are on the front lines of you know actually what is what is mental illness right Mm -hmm. you know like we have this thing in canada called bell let's talk day that gets 155 million retweets every year Mm -hmm. and i'm like okay so like what are we actually talking about yep we're actually talking about trauma right but nobody's talking about trauma and every person that approaches me every day has trauma yeah right it's not about their mental illness it's not about their addiction issues i'm waiting to hear the trauma story Theo, do you think playing in the NHL where a, a sport that is known for their athletes being, oh, you know, he had to get 18 stitches and only missed one shift. And, you, you know, NHL players are, are tougher than tough. Do you think that, that that was that played into you not being able to deal with the trauma part of what was going on as you were a player, because as, as any of us who have played sports know, when you're an athlete, your job is not to think your job is to do, here's yeah. your role. Here's what you're supposed to do. Go do it. Yeah. 
And, you know, I'm sure as a pro athlete that, you know, no one wants to hear what's wrong with Theo Fleury. It's just shut up and put the puck in the net. Yeah. And then the other thing that you mentioned that I think is, is really, really smart is you talked about how big pharma owns mental health. Yeah. And number one, you, you mentioned the side effects and commercials. And I always laugh because like when you listen to those side effects, inevitably one of the side effects they'll mention is death. Death is not a side effect. <laughs> death is pretty fucking permanent. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and, and secondly is there's, and someone said this years ago, and it's very, very true is that there's no money in cures. There's money in treatment. And instead of dealing, like you said, dealing with the trauma that's causing all of this, it's easier just to take this pill and treat the symptom that's manifesting. Oh, you're depressed? Take this. You won't be depressed anymore. Don't worry about why you're depressed. Let's just get you not depressed. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know the why, you know, right. but yeah, we can, we can pick out one entity and, and pick on them, which is, you know, pro sports or sports in general, but this is a societal thing, mm-hmm. you know, like we're trying to do undo a hundred thousand years of trauma. Right. Right. You know, because when you even look at the epigenetics behind all of this, you know, uh, you know, you look at the Holocaust survivors, you know, uh, what I'm told is that, you know, when your parents are making you, they're passing trauma genes into your system. So even though you have an experienced trauma, you still come out of the womb with, with a piece of DNA that has trauma attached to it. So, you know, and uh, you're not going to go through this life unscathed. If you do, you are in like a minute minority of people. Uh, if you can go through this whole entire life unscathed, but I, you know, the majority of people have trauma in their, in their story. Right. You know, it's like, you know, the next time you're able to go to a, gathering or whatever and you see this guy or this girl who can't talk can't fucking stand up you know all these things like that person is in severe emotional pain and suffering that's why they're in the state that they're in instead of laughing at them or judging them or pointing the finger at them you know i look at that person as holy cow that person's in pain because that used to be me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, there's this, you know, there's this thing out there that everybody thinks that the reason why, you know, my NHL career ended was because of my addiction. Well, that's false. It was because of my mental health. My state of mental health was like, I couldn't manage it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it was disguised as an addiction. Right. And my addiction was my medicine because I tried all the big pharma shit made me way worse, you know? And so, you know, the perception was, but, you know, in 2003, who was talking about mental illness? Nobody, nobody. So there was no, there was no place for me to even say that I was having panic attacks and, you know, and my anxiety, my depression and all, there was no space for that to even be mentioned. 
right? I couldn't even go to the team doctor because I couldn't even explain to him what the hell was going on, you know? And so, so yeah, hopefully. We had an event with Robin and uh, Robin Lerner again. And um, this was, this is like a year and a half ago. Theo knows the story, but it's hilarious. And part of what you're des- describing, Chris, and I'll, and I'll weave it back into Theo's experiences. So, so Robin is obviously one of the more open athletes, not just in the NHL and sports and one of the more open celebrities, right? They yep. have to talk about his challenges. And so someone in the front row raised their hand and said, Robin, you know, you're more open than the average person. But do you think that you sharing is because you've been through so much more than anyone else and there's really not as many players in the NHL dealing with stuff the way that you are? It's just because you're dealing with so much more. That's why you're open. And so Robin just like, Robin's sense of humor is hilarious because it's just Swedish, like dry personality, right? And he's like, so there's a player on my team who slaps his stick on the left-hand top corner of the locker seven times, always seven times before he comes out on the ice. But our coach says that's his routine, his pregame routine. Then he goes, then the young guy who gets called up for minors, who scored 30 goals in 15 games before he comes up to us, and then his first eight games with us, he – slips all over the place and he can't put the puck in the net but the coach just calls that jitters yeah that's not performance anxiety and what happened with the player <laughs> hitting a stick that's not ocd right mm-hmm. the point is that like we all find ways what theo did with his career is he found ways with drugs alcohol women gambling right he found ways to be able to manage the emotional pain that he was in what I just described with what Robin said with the player hitting the stick seven times in the corner or the player not being, these are all things that we gravitate toward that look different, that are the mask around the difficult feelings that we're having, right? And, 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 and it's like this invisible bag that we're all carrying around that's heavy. And instead of reaching in the bag and taking the clothes out, it's like we're trying to find a little perch to put the bag on. And that's what all those vices are. And so high performance folks, especially like Theo, back to kind of the earlier part of the conversation, if you're able to get by because in your entire life, take mental health out of it for a second, oh, that player is going harder to the puck than you are beating you in one-on-one battles. What do you do? You put your nose to the ground. You work harder to beat the crap out of them and get the puck from them the next time, right? Or you've been in a slump lately. You need to change this around in order to make sure you're scoring goals. So what do you do? You change and you work your butt off and you watch film and you do that. So we think when we're high performance folks that our way past whatever we're feeling is just white knuckle it, grin and bear it, get through it, take whatever we need with the alcohol, with the drugs to get through it, and eventually it'll get over. But the problem with mental health is it's cumulative when we don't deal with it. And that's why Theo ended up with a gun, fully loaded pistol in between his teeth, rattling about to blow his head off. That's why I ended up in a bed laying it, staring at the ceiling for two and a half years. That's why Robin will say, I need to share my story because I was at such a low point when I went to the league substance abuse program that I would have been dead if I didn't share my story, right? Like, right. so we get to these places where the cum- accumulation then builds up so much. And Theo and I and Darren even has a story now, like we're out there, we want to share our story so that people don't ever get to this frigging point, right? There's no reason for us to get to the point. And oh, by the way, NHL player or to Theo's point, surgeon or store shop owner or, you know, folder at Macy's, like you can perform better at your job and enjoy your life outside of your job. If you work on these things, 
more so than what you're doing right now, as opposed to ignoring it and thinking it'll eventually get better. So the more we're out there talking about it, the more we think we can actually positively impact people's lives on a, on a broader scale. Um, this yeah, is... and, the more, and the more stories we can hear from everyday people talking about their trauma, then we start to normalize the conversation. And, and, right. and, and we, we, you know, we can say everybody has mental health. Everybody has mental health challenges and it's mm -hmm. okay. And you can overcome them. You know, like when, when a suicide happens of a celebrity, like we're sending the wrong <laughs> message. Right. You know, yep. we're sending the wrong message. And yeah. it's just, you know, we need to normalize the conversation. Yeah. Right. Because I know in, in the almost 13 years that I've been, I've done the research. It all comes back to trauma. And if you, and if you don't release the trauma, which is by telling your story and using your voice and having a positive experience from that, then you can move forward. Mm -hmm. But if we keep the trauma inside of us, we're going to get cancer, we're going to get diabetes, we're going to have hypertension, we're going to have all those things. If, if we don't release the trauma, we're going to have trouble. Yeah, I'll be and honest. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that, you know, I don't struggle, but I have a toolbox full, full to the brim of things that I can use very quickly to get out of depression, to get out of anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to ride out a panic attack, that it's part of, part of Theo Fleury's existence that I'm going to have panic attacks. Like I've, I've accepted the fact that the rest of my life, I'm going to have issues, but every time, uh, you know, I either do research or I listen to people who are having success you know, managing their, their, their mental health stuff. I put that in my toolbox and I have it there mm -hmm. so that, so that when I'm struggling, I know what to do and I can get quickly, get myself out of where, where I'm going. And what I tell people is, you know what? I'm still fucking crazy, <laughs> but you know what? It's way more manageable. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's my craziness that makes me unique and makes me individual. Yeah. That's what yeah. craziness is. Yeah. Right. Yes. Well that's, said. That's very well said. And I'll be honest with both of you guys. I could probably sit here and talk to you guys for another like two or three hours. For real. Because I'm so great. I'm so intrigued by everything we've talked about, and we can probably keep doing this for all night. But I I know you guys have plans outside of this. So let's uh, talk about where everybody can find uh, you guys on social media or. Um, where they can find the podcast, we're all a little crazy. So Eric, go ahead and if you want to fill people in. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So as an organization, which Theo and Chamika Holtzclaw and Robin and all these folks, you know, are part of the, the social channels are easy. It's just at same here underscore global. Uh, you know, the LinkedIn's, the the Instagrams, the 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 Twitters. Um, for the for the podcast, uh, you know. You guys are in this space, right? So, so you know that we're told to start with Apple, telling people to go to Apple first because apparently that's where you're able to rise up the the ranking. So, mm -hmm. it's just the way that it sounds is we're so it's conjunction. It's not we are. We're all a little crazy, crazies in quotes. If you need to get to that part of it before you find it, but you know, go there. You'll see our promo episode. Um, by the time this airs, 
We'll probably have episode one up, which is going to be the end of this week. Okay. Uh, so April 16th is our, is our launch date and really appreciate it. Theo, you want to share your own personals? Sure. Um, so I'm at Theo Fleury 14 on all social media platforms. And then my website is theoflurry.life. And, uh, you know, one thing, uh, that Eric and I do is we, uh, I think right from day one, have made ourselves available to every single person on the planet who needs to share whatever they need to share. We are always uh, around and we are always willing to listen. And uh, yeah, I think that's, and you know, we, we've, we've built something really special and really great. Um, you know, we have uh, the four main uh, sports uh, franchises in the world, the NFL, the MLB, the NHL that are now asking us for help in uh, rolling out their programs and how they interact with their fans and all of that. And so, you know, that's, that's awesome because, because we're not like, we've sort of put it out there that we're not like any other, you know, group that's out there that we're actually, um, we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And we want to, you know, we want to have healthy um, people, you know, yeah. and, you know, what we're seeing right now is, you know, with the pandemic and everything that's happening, there's been a spike in, in mental illness and, and then there's been a spike in, in suicides as well. And so, um, you know, this, we really believe that this is an important topic that needs to be changed, how we, discuss it and uh you know there's there's three really great guys who are you know talking a different language when it comes to mental health and mental wellness and, you know all those things so we're, we're excited about the opportunity and and uh um you know i'm already doing thousands of podcasts uh, every week yeah. so you know might as well have my own <laughs> sounds good yeah go. exactly that's, uh, that's the way to go so uh we're all a little crazy so obviously Apple to start and obviously it'll probably be on every single platform you can think of. So Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Pocket Cast, all the different casts that are out there. Anywhere you find your podcast, you'll probably be able to find it. That's usually how these are the easiest way once you get rolling, as we well know, on our podcast. So thanks again, guys, for coming on the show. And I can't wait to hear the first episode. I'll tell you right now, that's definitely on my subscribe list. And I'll be listening yep. every week to listen to you guys talk. And honestly, just learning more, just what I've learned to just in our conversation here is increase my knowledge tenfold. So thank you guys for coming on and I super appreciate it. I'll, yeah. I'll end on this is you guys sign off, Jason and Chris. And, and I should start saying this more with all the shows, you know, the, the value of a network that, that there, there is a hockey podcast network. Mm -hmm. Look, your listeners are coming here. You guys as hosts are doing this because there's a love for hockey. Yes. 98% of the content you're going to talk about is about hockey and blues. And look how excited I got when I saw you gave me an opportunity. I, I didn't even scratch the surface and talking about 93 Islanders hockey. <laughs> <laughs> well, you come back on anytime and talk about it. Yep. But what we hope is, you know, this becomes a thread of the conversation. If we can thread that into the 2%, right? Mm -hmm. Robin Leonard wearing that hashtag on his helmet, people asking the question, yeah, I, I saw I saw comments, you know, because I'm an Islander fan now, people who are still so tied to the story of Robin's story and are pulling for him. And then when one of them is going through something, they lose a parent or something like that. 
and they're able to relate through Robin's story, a guy who played for them two years ago, but is representing for people generally. That's what we hope comes from this is, you know, we don't expect there to be this like, you know, influx of so much conversation about it with all your different podcasts, but just to keep the thread going a little bit here and there would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's awesome. I think you guys are are doing a phenomenal job. And, and just in the time that we've spent, like Jason said, the things that you guys say that, that makes sense to me that I never thought about in the context until you guys, and we talked about it this afternoon. Um, the podcast is going to be something that I'm going to listen to every week. And I think that you guys are doing a great job of, like you said, trying to normalize the fact that we all in some way or another have had trauma in our lives and to think that it hasn't affected you and doesn't continue to affect you is just naive. And it's, it's okay to admit, Hey, life isn't perfect and we're not perfect, but we're all the same people and we're all here to help each other. And that's something that, you know, you don't have to sit and be quiet about it and, and be on your own to work through it. You, you, it's okay to say, I need help. Yeah. Well, you, you can't outthink mental illness. You can't outthink right. it because you well got said. two, two pretty smart guys who tried to outthink mental illness and, and they're, <laughs> it was a disaster. You know what I mean? So, right. um, you know, you need help, right? Yep. I always say the day I ask for help was the day I saved my own life. And that's mm -hmm. the truth. Yeah. You know, because, I'm sure it is. you know, and, and what's happened is, you know, we've, we've collected people, like we collect people. And once we, once they come on board, like they never want to leave. Mm -hmm. They want to leave because they feel safe. They feel heard. They feel acknowledged, all those things. And that's, and that's ultimately what, you know, this whole five and five, instead of one and five, it's five and five. And in sure. order to solve one of the biggest mysteries on the planet, it's going to take all of us. Yeah. And, and, and it's as simple as using these two things that you got attached to your head. That's all I would say the majority of time, that's all I got to do is listen. I don't have to give advice. I don't have nothing. I just listen. I'm present. I'm attuned. And you should see the change that happens in somebody in a matter of five or 10 minute meeting. People yeah. want to be heard. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So guys, thank you again for being on the show. Uh, you're welcome to come back anytime. Talk, uh, please, please talk come back. Anything. Yeah. Like I, like you said, we just scratched the surface of talking. So welcome back anytime. So thank you guys for being on the show. We appreciate it. Thank both of you. Thanks, Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Go blues. Thank you.